everyone. Welcome back to the Stories Podcast. Uh, I'm Cody Schaus here with Marcy Martinez. Hey, guys. And um, we're so glad you're here this week. Uh, week whatever, week 49 of quarantined life. Not really. It feels like it. Uh, every day feels like a week. But Marcy, how was your week this week in quarantine life? Um, Overall, I would say my week was very good. I did notice every day this week I had an emotional moment. <laughs> oh, yeah? It. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like fine 90% of the time and then just have this extreme emotion at one point. Mm. Uh, just funk or anger or I don't know about sadness, maybe sadness. But, but then, you know, kind of keep moving and it would pass. But it was really weird how, like, strong emotion kind of hit at different times so yeah. but overall it was a very good week how about you um about the same um in the sense of emotion but for different reason altogether we had some bad news in our family this week with my dad's health uh not hopeless news but not the trajectory we hoped for and have prayed for for several months now so so yeah there was a lot of just personal emotion to that and my my tendency is um I'm not a healthy person all the time, Marcy. My tendency is to flee and just kind of be like, ah, move on, next thing, and keep going, as opposed to kind of integrate those, that information into my everyday life and let it become uh, a part of who I am because it is real. Uh, it's not It's not a, a fake thing. It's not, it's not an alternate reality happening that I get to move past. And so kind of just settling in and accepting uh, the bad news um, for that and Integrate is the word I've been trying to use with a lot of these emotions lately. Like, how do I integrate these into who I am? And integration means, for me, it means that there's some altering happening. Like, I have to adjust, but I also get to continue um, with those adjustments. Uh, integration allows, means I don't stall out and that kind of stuff. So, so for me, that integration has become a very important part of my uh, emotions in this season of life. So, so yeah, but day to day, I feel like our family is getting a little bit of a routine. Not that routine is the answer, but routine for our family is helpful. So I, I did, I did kind of, I don't think I jumped the shark per se, but I, I went out last night and I was like, you know what? It's time all my kids had a baseball glove. So <laughs> I went online and bought a whole, bought the entire family baseball gloves and a, a case of baseballs and started teaching my kids how to throw and catch a baseball last night so (laughs) so it was a hundred dollars well spent and even bought myself a glove Mark. like I've never I don't know if I've ever owned my own baseball glove I'm 40 years old and when I was like third fifth grade fourth fourth grade I played baseball in the YMCA and I used my uncle's glove (laughs) <laughs> that's how committed I was. Wow. Um, and, so, and then in college, when I played intramural softball, I uh, called another uncle and borrowed his glove. <laughs> so I've never owned my own baseball glove until last night. So, um, But we did. We sat in the backyard after Portico was over and threw the baseball around for an hour or so. And it was, oh, I don't know how people didn't get black eyes and – yeah. We didn't throw a ball over the fence. I don't know how. Um, my littles, they, I, I'm not a coach, but I may have to figure something out because <laughs> their throwing is not that great. So, <laughs> but hey, they're five and six, so it's okay. But it was just a great time. 
It was just yeah. a wonderful time. So I, I love playing catch. Like I uh, had a, I've had a glove as long as I can remember. Yeah. And I would go out. We had a, a high pitched roof, and so I would go out and throw a tennis ball up on the roof and okay. catch it with myself that way i could play you know and yeah so i've always loved like i find it very therapeutic to just play catch and relax mm. and well you can come over and say, join anytime yeah, we keep social distancing and wear a glove and we can throw a ball around <laughs> it's funny i said that my future husband had to be able to play catch and you should have seen javi the first time he had to play catch with me he was like sweating he, was so <laughs> he can come it. too <laughs> But you also were helping the neighborhood because my neighbors played baseball in their front yard the other day, and it just made me so happy. So, so that's where I got the idea. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. I saw some neighbors throwing the ball on the sidewalk, and I was like, Bishop, would you want to do that? And he's like, I would love to do that. I was like, that's it. We're doing it. So mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> so that's, that's great. exactly how that's it went down. Good investment. In <laughs> I think so, too. It's It's already brought a lot of fun, so. And even this morning when the kids woke up, they ran out and grabbed their gloves and a tennis ball, and they were out there throwing So, um, while I was in here working. So, anyways, it's already a good thing. So, Well, hey, our, our story in the news this week is one you sent me. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's heavy but really good. So, why don't you lead our conversation through our article today? Okay. I uh, stumbled upon this article earlier this week, and it's by Marnie Wedlake, and it was written on April 17th, and it says, uh, the title is, Some Students in the Class of 2020 May Face Traumatic Loss Due to Coronavirus. Here's How to Help, Um, which I'm so thankful as a college minister, minister to stumble upon something like that because, you know, I think, I don't know if I've said it in the podcast, but I know I've said it to you many times, I have felt most compassion and concern for our seniors, our mm. gra- those that are graduating because Absolutely. of uh, all of the things, you know. Um, and it, it says in her article, I mean, she describes kind of early in, she, uh, she, the very first sentence, in a rapid response to COVID-19, universities moved classes online and brought campus life to a sudden halt <laughs> for thousands of final year graduates. And that that is really what we witnessed. I mean, classes yep. went online. Uh, campus life came to a halt and there, you know, there were still some that had lived in the same place for four years and had to move out within a week, you know, go in the rain, move your entire life out and move back to your family. Yeah. And it's just, and it happened without warning, right? It was, Hey, go to do spring break. We're going to extend it a week. And then they never, then no one came back. Yeah. Right. So it happened like, yeah, there was, there's no closure to anything yet. And, yeah, the sudden end <laughs> yeah. is, is true. And, and uh, it goes on to talk about how, you know, there's not a time. I'll have to find it. But um, it, it doesn't give them time to have the normal. Uh, what, what I have it written down. It takes away the most events that temper the sadness of saying goodbye, which would be, you know, graduation or it would be graduation parties or it would be banquets at the end of the year. Um, all of the, the milestones that we go through, you know, they are experiencing none of those. And so it really is just this sudden um, kind of just a change of life, basically, right? And so uh, what have you seen, Cody? Have you seen that in the, the guy students that you, you meet with? How's that played out? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I do think I, – I think some guys – you know, guys tend to think – I don't want to speak broadly. I'll, okay, con- confession broad brushstroke guys tend to think in the more immediate not in the long run right 
And so I think the immediate was, oh, I'm not going to see my friends. And now the immediate is, is, oh, this is going to go into summer. Like I'm about to take finals from home. Like it's kind of what's next is kind of what's most pressing. Um, and so I think, I think especially our senior guys are starting to embrace that. Or maybe this, it's, it was always an idea, but now it's a reality, right? A month ago it was the idea that I won't get to walk, but now it's, oh, I really don't get to walk. Um, or at least I don't get to walk till August, right? There is, there's, there's an attempt on the school's part to do something, but again, that closure idea is just, or the lack thereof of closure is, is, is heavy and it's pressing. Um, but it is becoming more and more reality, I think among, uh, among all seniors. So, yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the, which we're not going to spend a long time talking about it, but you've got the added stress of now they all need to find a job yeah. <laughs> in an economy where what, I mean, I, I was going to look at the latest numbers and I didn't, but um, uh, extremely large unemployment uh, rate right yeah. now. And so uh, not only is everything different, but they have an added stress to find a job via Zoom interviews and in a market that's difficult. So. I read an article this week, Marcy, and I think this, this is a good figure to just understand what I think we're going to walk into. One, he's an economist, but now he like consults for nonprofits. So training and early careers, econo- economics, now he helps nonprofits. Um, and he's, he foresees a 20% constriction on spending and giving in our culture. And to put that into kind of some comparison, the Great Recession of 2008 there was 4% constriction of spending and giving Ooh, in yeah. the in the GDP, and he thinks 20. So he's actually telling his nonprofits to work off of a 40% less giving, so a 60% budget in the short-run future, so the next two to three years of theirs. So imagine trying to get a job in an economy that's going to be five times more constricted than the Great Recession of 2008, than 12 years ago. And that just to me breaks, blows my mind and breaks my heart for so many people, especially our seniors, who are trying to enter a workforce for the first time. Um, small confession, confession, as you said that, I felt myself feeling stress. Yeah, yeah, there's no way to avoid that, that and stress. I'm not the one that's having to do that. Yeah. And, and not even the seniors, but also their parents. You yep. know, I mean, they've invested all of this um, – financial support and support, you know, emotional support. And now their child who they thought was about to be moving out is now moving back, you know? Yep. So uh, very different time for, for this population for sure. Yeah. Um, let's go on in the article in the, the, still in the first paragraph it says, which I think is the thesis, the fallout from this has the potential to exaggerate the essential existential despair that many young people may be experiencing or turn into as a traumatic loss. So then she goes on to talk about this existential despair and um, traumatic loss. So let's go into the first topic of existential despair. And it's basically this idea that uh, you end up having to, you end up losing your purpose. Uh, When, when a person loses their purpose, they've, kind of have to face this uh facing the moral self and unbearable truth of your finiteness mm-hmm. which no one wants to do that that's horrible um and really this element of what is life's purpose you know and so um 
I think she even says in the article that they've had a normal routine, you know, yeah. and they've had purpose. And then all of the sudden, I mean, it is a lot of it is gone. And and what what do you do with that? Um, what were your thoughts on this this top this point? Yeah, I, I just kept thinking of something I saw earlier this week was Hulk Hogan. I know it ran to bring Hulk Hogan in the conversation, but I read a few years ago, Hulk Hogan, you know, he gave he, he had a. Christian conversion, I guess, came to faith in Jesus. And this week he tweeted, um, God has taken our idols away. This is a chance for us to reevaluate. And again, it's coming from Hulk Hogan, so it's incredibly difficult to take serious. But if you if you took the con if you took the comment and get, made it from, you know, a Tim Keller or a Matt Chandler or from a pastor, it would make sense. And so that's the hard part for me. Um, but it's hard to take serious because it's from Hulk Hogan. But he said this very thing, that this idea that the things we would worship and idolize, schedule, community, he talks about entertainment and sports, but I think even the more necessities of life, uh, just the idea of flourishing. We've, we've really idolized flourishing for the sake of comfort and not trusted God for comfort is what he kind of digs into. Is I, Well, I took it there. I don't think he did. But anyways... I just think so many parts of our culture right now are being forced into this evaluation, almost existential evaluation, and I would argue that is not a strong place for our culture, <laughs> existential or evaluation. So mm-hmm. uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of hurt that comes from being forced into it, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, you know, she says, for others, existential despair happens suddenly or is triggered by a significant event. Depressed or anxious thoughts and feelings about ourselves and our future are common. But I like this. Existential despair can be destabilizing or an opportunity for change, which is what you said. You know, so uh, it, it can go either way. Yeah. <laughs> um, for sure. And I think that one thing that does uh, affect that is this next element of traumatic loss. Like it can go into places of um feeling traumatic loss or it can you know it can also as you said bring us into uh new patterns and new, you know some for some students college is horrible they didn't yes. actually have the typical college experience and they're ready to move on and they're ready for change and yeah so, so that was a thought i had when reading this section was she kind of almost creates a utopian idea of what the university setting campus life is for a student that it's not traumatic but i was like for some it is traumatic <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and this is a relief for some, as going to college is relief for some, being done with college is relief for some as well. Yeah. And, and she, so in kind of what you were talking about, this utopian, she says for about four years, university has been their home, community, and source of identity. Some will be at greater risk of fallout than others. And then she says those who are struggling with the transition and those with histories of trauma will be at greater risk at experiencing this as a traumatic loss, which I actually, I really loved that because I'm even seeing in that, and that makes sense. She goes on to talk about childhood trauma and says that a third to a half of our population that are 18 and younger have experienced childhood trauma. And then she kind of compares it to when they, or says when they come to college, a lot of them are able to kind of put that behind them and you know, feel less alone and kind of become this new person. And, and now if they're back in their home or they're already, they're experiencing a new trauma, it triggers the old trauma. And now we're back in a, 
a really def, uh, negative, sad place, right? Yeah. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah. I, again, I go back to the a little a little utopianized idea that I I just don't see. I see just as many students who are lonely in college as I do working with student ministers of high school students. And so I don't know that college is this great place for everybody. It probably is for most, um, but not for everybody. And so I would argue that those who experience, not want to argue, I would add that those who, ex- that one-third to one-half who in, an, in all nightmares had trauma under the age of 18, that, yeah, this, that college could be just as traumatic, if not more traumatic for them. Which all that does is inflate, I think, what she's getting at is that this is a traumatic, this can be a traumatic moment for so many. Mm-hmm. Cody, as you, I'm interested, you know, I brought this up last week in our talk, but I'm going to continue, all unfortunately, right. probably. But, you know, I feel like you have had to learn quite a bit about trauma in the last few years with your car wreck. What are some main things for you? Obviously, everybody's trauma is different, but what are some things you've learned about trauma uh, in the last few years? Yeah, the first two things that come to mind, one of them you just said, and this is a big one for me, was everyone's trauma is different. I I remember early on in my recovery, I kept hearing people who had it worse than me and kept literally, so my injury, only single digit percentage of people with my injury walk away. And we're talking less than five finger, like less than five percent of the people with my injury and my surgery walk away from it, and I'm walking and dry. So I'm one of those five percent. And constantly, I would find stories of people who had the same injury, same surgery, who are paraplegic or quadriplegic and in wheelchairs the rest of their life, and kept thinking, "I don't need to feel bad because they have it way worse than me." And I learned, I'm not going to say really quickly, but over a, a, a bit of time, that that doesn't help me. And admitting that this is traumatic, it could be worse, but it could be better, right? Like that's the that's what made it traumatic is I didn't plan it. It was completely out of my hands. Had I been in more control of this, it would look completely different. And so I think that's it is don't try to compare trauma as better or worse or greater than or less than. Yeah. Is this traumatic for me? How do I pursue health? And I'll go back to that integration word again. How can I integrate this new reality into my original identity. Um, and so, again, this is what I'm learning now. <laughs> so I say yeah. that way down the road, this integration idea. Um, but the first thing is, yeah, everyone defines, responds, and has trauma differently. So don't feel like your trauma is less or more than other people's. Your trauma is your trauma. Um, and learn to grieve with other people no matter the state or level of trauma. Second thing I, I think I learned... Um, was I don't have to give this a reason. I don't have to define this right away. I don't have to understand this right away. I can walk in faith. I can walk understanding God's glory, God's peace, God's beauty, God's love for me in a way without defining this. I read a book, and I'm forgetting the author's name. She's a, she's a professor at Duke Divinity School, kind of one of the leading historians of the uh, charismatic movement um, in, in the Christian world, especially in America. But she's a Duke Divinity, and she wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and the Other Lies the Church Taught Me. And it just she got diagnosed with untreatable stage 4 cancer, 
um, right after she had her first child that they had incredible difficulty having. So just this incredible high followed by this demoralizing low and kind of how she brought resolve in her faith and her life, all that together. And one of the things was, she kind of ended with, I don't have a reason for this. And that is okay with my faith. Like that doesn't shake or alter my faith. My faith doesn't sit on my understanding of every moment of my life. So, so I, it's okay for me to say, I don't have a reason for this. I don't know the reason for this which is why I enjoyed the article we, we talked about last week so much, N.T. Wright's article, was, hey, God allows us to go through seasons of not knowing, and he calls that lament. And that's what I loved about that conversation. So those would be the first two things I think off the top of my head I would throw out there, that don't, don't try to compare trauma. It doesn't help anybody. And then two, it's okay to not have to define this moment right away. Or at all, Right. Is my love for God and Jesus and gratitude towards a cross and a resurrected king, is it really, is the kickstand of my faith really understanding every moment? That if I don't understand every moment, my faith crumbles? I hope not. I hope that's not a third leg that I've tried to create that um, is somehow the stability of my faith, understanding every moment. I hope it's not. Yeah. That's great, because, I mean, and, and that leads us, I mean, I love those things, and we were actually going to hit on those, so it's perfect, <laughs> you know, because then she goes on the article to talk about um, how to, how do we respond, Yeah. both how does the person who's feeling this respond, and how do those around them respond, you know, and she talks about uh, one that you didn't hit, which is the idea that anguish isn't a disorder. Yes, like, I love I that, by our, the way. Yeah, in our culture, we're just so easy um, to take someone to the doctor and say, this person's depressed, give them medicine, yeah. you know, um, as opposed to saying, no, this person's just grieving and deeply sad and life has changed dramatically. Yeah. And, and as you talked about this idea of just sitting with someone in their grief, um, which is, is really what she, she goes on yeah. to say, uh, is to, to just ask them um, really big questions. She uses the questions, what has been triggered by this sudden loss? What have you been carrying that you can no longer hold? And then what else are you struggling with for mm. those that it's triggered back previous traumatic uh, experiences? And um, I just think that's so powerful because, you know, I, I'm so glad that you brought up the comparative suffering because I was actually going to bring it up too okay. as, as something I like struggle with, you know, mm. as well. Um, and even Dr. Brene Brown, who I love, who yeah. just started her own podcast, did a, a talk a few weeks ago on comparative suffering. Oh, like wow. An hour-long talk. So if, if, if anyone's listening to this and you actually struggle with um, comparative suffering as well, this idea, you know, as Cody described, of, well, I'm not doing well, but compared to other people, I'm doing okay, so right. I can't. You know, and I could definitely see this for someone who's graduating. I mean, you're graduating from an amazing university. You have all of these things. You know, your family is still stable. Like, I can't grieve. I yeah. can't feel bad for myself. My, or my parents lost my job, their job. Yeah. I can't feel bad, you know. Um, and the reality is, no, we can all feel bad together. <laughs> yeah. We can all grieve together. Um so, yeah, I really like that idea. And then, and I love, and I was kind of hoping you would talk about it last week. So I'm glad that you picked up this week on, on what you talked about, about just the need for understanding. Our culture is just so driven by that. And even specifically younger students, I yeah. think that they, I think younger people just are really, I mean, we all struggle with it, but 
I think we all have this false belief that I have to understand why this is happening mm -hmm. and we just cannot. You yeah. Know? So. And that's okay. Like it's mm -hmm. okay. I, I just, and, and look at the life of, of Christ. Christ said, can we change this? And, and he knew the reason, right? Like in John 17, father, if there's another way I'm committed, but if there's another way, if we can do something other than the cross, he said, but your will be done, right? And and he knew the end result. Like he had, and he still admitted there was some desire for something different. And so if I don't know the outcome of all of this, then how much more am I allowed to delight in Christ not knowing and not feel shame for doubting or questioning or wondering a little bit more than I ever have. And, yeah. and yeah, so I think the shame of feeling selfish, I even had this conversation with my mom and she's probably going to listen to this and hate me for mentioning it, but she loves me. This is what she tells me. So <laughs> when we got our news about my dad, she just, it, it was, it was hard. And she started saying how she felt. I asked her and she started saying, and then she goes, but I'm just being selfish. And I'm like, no, you're not like, this is the season to look at life and say, I've never asked for this, whatever it is before, and not feel selfish. I have a new need so I can have a new request. I've never needed this before, so it's okay for me to ask for it and let and see how God provides. God may provide clarity. He may not, but it's okay yeah. to ask. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you shared that. That's good. Um. Okay, last thing in here, you know, we talked about now how others around them can respond, mm. but uh, how does the person, the graduate of 2020, who is currently feeling such loss, how do they respond? She lists uh, several at the bottom of, of the article. One would be maintain a schedule and routine. I do think that we've talked about that we talked before, about that, but I yeah. think that that's very helpful I think another one that she shared that was really good was uh, this idea also of like productivity in our world and how we're like feeling this pressure to, you know, produce, produce right now yeah. we have extra time, but that it's okay to just be and it's mm -hmm. okay to feel however you feel. Those things I think were really important. And then I really also liked one more that I think would, we can expand on far more, but this idea of repurpose or like yep. finding a new purpose. So, you know, maybe going and getting groceries for your elderly neighbor, which is a very real need, Great you know, need. but if, if we're, if you're suffering from a loss of purpose, trying to at least gravitate into small purposes until, you know, maybe a big job or some other big one comes, I think, I think there's still need all around us. How can we step into that in some small, healthy ways, you know? Yeah. Um, I thought those were really good. But Yeah, I'm excited to jump into those more. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I want my guys to respond so we can have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. well, what are, what are a couple books, maybe even quicker reads if you had something, maybe that wasn't academic, but more, what, what are some things, do you have any recommendations on something a student could run out to Amazon, download the Kindle, and enjoy? Oh, Lord. Um. <laughs> if you don't, it's okay. I know you've given me a couple. I don't remember the names of them, but I, that, that yeah. I enjoyed you sharing with me. So, I mean, as I um, 
as I mentioned, the podcast by Brene Brown. Yeah. She's a great author, and it's very grace-filled and compassionate. Um, and and if you you can read her books, but also now she's got the new podcast, and she's a uh, what she calls herself a sociologist, comedian, uh, no storyteller. Okay. Storyteller, and she uses a lot of humor, which I appreciate. So. I'm a huge fan of the things that she uh, teaches. But then also, um, I, I have some more that I can, can share in a few minutes. Why don't you go with the ones you have, and I'll, okay. I'm looking at my books right now. Yeah, there's there's two that come to mind. One I mentioned earlier, it's the um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Learned at Church. And it's, it is probably 80% biographical of her story and how she walked with God through incredibly traumatic times in her life. Here's the upside. She, this probably four years ago, diagnosed with cancer, still fighting. And she is part of trials and doing using um, drugs that are under research. And she's still fighting, still teaching, still raising her son. And so praise Jesus for the life he's given in spite of death-taking illness. The second is probably the book I, I lean on the most and recommend the most. It's called A Grace Disguised um, by Jerry Stitzer. This is the book that really freed me from that comparative grief you talked about. Um, this is a guy who lost his – he had he was married and had four kids and in one night lost his wife, his mother, and three of their kids. Or maybe he had five kids and lost three. It's him and two children left. And in one car wreck, lost all those people. And his first chapter is this idea of comparative grief, that my grief is grief and trauma, and so is everyone else's. He's like, how do I look at someone who's only lost their wife and think I have it worse than them? You know, he's like, loss is loss. So Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss by Jerry Sitzer, Sitzer, S-I-T-T-S-E-R, is just a wonderful book. It's really small. Um, If you devote it a day, you could read it in a day. I, I think it'll take longer because it's a pretty emotional book. So, uh, but it's not a long read, but it is a it will it will cause you to open up in some areas and think about some things. So, but I loved it. It took me several months to get through it um, because of pace, not because of it, not because it's a big bulky book. Well, that's great. I think those sound like very challenging, <laughs> but good reads. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think. I'm, I'm glad we talked about this article. I am too. Relevant. I'm yeah. glad you shared yeah. it. Thank you for sharing it with me, with the podcast. Thanks for sharing it with staff when you did. It was wonderful. So I don't know who the story is today. Just so you know, I'm never going to know, but I'm going to tell you every week. I don't know who it is, but I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We love you guys. We're proud of you. Uh, we'll check you on the flip side. Hey everyone, thanks for jumping on the Longhorn BSM Stories podcast this week. My name's Cody Schaus, I serve on the BSM team here in Austin, and uh, today we're talking with Jamie Richardson. Jamie graduated in 2019, and um, when we recorded this, she had just started uh, her internship on the staff, even though we're releasing it far later, she's actually wrapping up her internship now, but we recorded it, she had just started. So we hope today that you hear a hope and a faith and a humility and a surrender that Jamie lives out consistently. I know I know if you know her, you know those things, but if you don't, I pray you get to hear those things in her life. So yeah, she sits down with Marcy Martinez, another one of our team members, and we hope that uh, this is an encouragement to you. Love you guys.
Hey guys, this is Marcy Martinez here again, um, the BSM. I get to interview Jamie Richardson today. I'm very excited for you guys to get to know Jamie. I have had the opportunity of knowing her for four years, and uh, boy, we've had some good times. And uh, I'm excited for, for you guys to get to hear about her life and hear what uh, her life has looked like trying to walk with Jesus. So, Jamie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What makes you you? I am Jamie. I am currently an intern this year at the BSM. I just graduated in May of 2019 from UT. Um, I come from a really small town. I grew up in Evadale, Texas, which is in southeast Texas. It's a town of about 1,500, maybe. I graduated with, like, 40 people. I can tell you they're full name, date of birth, all of their families, names, you know, probably a pet somewhere. Um, but yeah, so I came from a really small town, and I studied at UT. I studied youth and community studies. Okay. Yeah. Why did you pick youth and community studies? Um, well, I actually came into UT wanting to do uh, some form of education. I wanted to be a teacher, or I thought that I wanted to be a teacher. And when I got to orientation, I realized I didn't really want to be a teacher. And there was this program within the College of Education called Youth and Community Studies. And it was more working with children or youth on the nonprofit side of education. And that seemed really interesting to me. And it was really something that I could craft to what I wanted to make it. And so I was really interested in that, and I knew that if my passions changed or my interests changed, I could still kind of take classes or craft it to something that would really fit to what I wanted to do. Okay, that's, yeah. that's a good idea. That's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, Jamie, tell us about Christianity or spirituality looks like in Evadale. Growing up, like, what was your perspective on Jesus? Despite being a town of 1,500 people, I'm pretty sure there are five or six churches. Uh, we have one street, and there are, like, yeah, five or six churches on the street. So it's very much a part of life in Evadale or part of that community. Um, but for me personally, I grew up in a family that went to church every Sunday and I was there every Wednesday. And it was very like, okay, this is something we do. and It's an expectation. I enjoyed it as a kid. As I got older, it was very much something that I still wanted to do, but didn't fully understand, maybe. It was something that, you know, all of the people that I went to school with, like I saw them at youth group or on, you know, Sundays, and if you weren't there, it was like, oh, like, you don't go to church, you know. So it was, it was very much a part of life at home, but I would say it was almost more like going through the motions and not really something that was, like, personal or always impacted my life, like my daily life. Mm -hmm. So it was like a cultural expectation. Yes, yeah, that's how I would describe it. So in your life, what was the shift? Like when did you move from being a follower of Jesus, being a cultural expectation to something that you wanted to do personally? So it kind of happened in a weird way over a long period of time for me. So when I was probably seven years old, I recognized that I believed that this story was true about Jesus and what he had done for me. And I was baptized in my church. You know, I confessed that I believed. And, and then I think there was a moment in high school where I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm, like, I am 
saying that I believe in Jesus, but I don't read my Bible and I only pray like at night or when I have a test or something crazy like that. And so, but I didn't really know how to move forward. I didn't know what really was missing until I went to college and I met people who actually had what I had been looking for. They actually had a personal relationship with Jesus and they taught me how to read my Bible, how to share my faith with people. And it was, there was just something different about them versus how I had grown up that, that they were really living this out in their life. They weren't just saying, oh, I'm a Christian, um, but it has nothing to do with my personal life. They were saying, oh, I'm a Christian, and because I'm a Christian, I live this way. And so I think that was kind of a shift for me is really when I got to college and got connected with the BSM. Okay, you, you said, you know, when you got to college and you saw uh, people in the BSM representing or, or interacting with Jesus in a different way than you had known, that you uh, decided that you maybe wanted to move forward in that. Was there, like, just one experience that you recognized it, or was it just the whole, how was it different for you? Yeah, I can think of specific interactions that I had with people that really demonstrated that, but I think it was also very much just the culture of the BSM was different in that everybody was working together toward a, a goal of knowing Jesus deeper and making him known on this campus. But I think one of the specific interactions I had, and it's really one of the reasons that I got further connected in the BSM, I, would, I came to free lunch, I sat down at a table really had no idea if these people were part of the BSM or not. And one of the guys who was an upperclassman in the BSM, um, his name is Caleb Bruce, he started talking to me. One, he made me feel really welcome there. Um, it wasn't, like, awkward for me to be there, even though I'd never been in this building before. And he started just sharing about his life. I noticed he had some weird, like, writing on his arms. <laughs> and I asked him about it, and he had names written down of people that he was praying for. And he told me about how he had spent his summer in another country seeking to make the name of Jesus known um, and sharing that with people or sharing his life with people. And it was evident that what he believed was really important to him, so important that he gave up a summer and wanted to do that. And that he was, it wasn't just like a solitary, okay, I did that this summer and now my life is moving on. He was continuing to pray for those people that he met. And for some reason that was like a shift in me and I was like, oh, this person is actually doing this with their life. And the more people that I met in the BSM who were connected, who were leaders, were also like that. Um, were actually, and being genuine, like they weren't weird about it. And I think that was really when I started to see that in other people. So once coming to college and interacting with the BSM, when you kind of decided, like, oh, okay, my life doesn't fully look like these upperclassmen or these other people at the BSM, what what actions or what things did you begin to do? Like, how did your life begin to change at that point? Yeah, so I started to really think about, okay, what in my daily life needs to change? That was a big thing. And I actually wanted to spend time getting to know who God was. And I, I did that primarily through, like, reading the Bible. And I had accountability with that. I don't know, that sounds kind of silly because you'd think like, oh, Christians read their Bible, but growing up, I didn't. Um, but I had some accountability with that. Something that I got connected with in the BSM was 
discipleship through what we call First Connections, and um, I had a girl who met with me weekly to talk about what I was reading in the Bible, and so I really started to do that. I started to pray and kind of give some things up in my life. I came in to UT having been in a couple of relationships that I really idolized. I idolized the person. I idolized being in a relationship. And a lot of them, as a result of that, were really unhealthy. And I think my freshman year is when I really started to realize that I couldn't live my life for another person or for a relationship, but I really needed to like let go of some of those things and actually let God have control of my life that the decisions that I made actually needed to be prayed about and thought about. And so I think that's, uh, there was an essence of like me giving up control in my life over some of those things. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting change for you. How did that feel? Like, how was that? It was really hard and it didn't happen all at once. It was kind of a back and forth and it really is something that I continued to deal with and struggle with throughout college like it wasn't just like okay I'm gonna let God have control of my life and the relationships that I have Um, it continued to be a theme throughout college of me really continuing to learn how to give up control so it was it was really hard at first scary I think Um, but honestly it It was a huge relief to know that I didn't have to have it all together and I didn't have to make all the decisions or do all of the right things. Yeah. But that I could truly take my hands off and let God have control. Yeah, I think as you say that, I think it points to one of the things in church life that sometimes we get confused about. Like, I do think we understand the idea that, yes, God's supposed to have control, but I also think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make ourselves right or good or presentable or to tell people about him in a way that is forced and not just because of genuine interest or desire. I think we as church people think that that's the right thing to do. If you're going to follow Jesus, then you checklist, you do all of these things. But I'm glad that you pointed out, uh, we really believe that if you just commune with God, if you read uh, the words that he spoke And if you are trying to speak and listen to him, that he begins to change your interest and he begins to overflow out of you. And so it's not necessarily all of those things are not things that you have to control and fight for and still do. Those are things that just you naturally begin to do. Is that kind of what you were saying and how that played out? Yes, I very much like the way that I grew up and my understanding of things was that there were a certain amount of good things that I needed to do and bad things that I needed to avoid. And that's what made a good Christian or like that's what made me a Christian. And so I often felt a lot of shame whenever I didn't do all of those good, like whenever I didn't go to church every Sunday or whenever I didn't read my Bible or shame around like, okay, I have this sin in my life or I have these really unhealthy relationships that I don't feel like I can get out of or that I don't know how to get out of. And it, 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 there's a lot of shame like surrounding those things. But you're right, as I actually started to pursue Jesus and spend time with him and read my Bible and pray and have a relationship with him, those things started to change um, because I let go of control and, and let God do actual work in my life. 
Um, so it happened, yeah, more naturally. And I had a lot of a sense of freedom from that shame that was really holding me back, I think. As you talk about this shame that was holding you back and then eventually you began to experience freedom from it, what was that process like? Or like what was going on in your mind and your heart with this battle with shame? So I think one of the biggest sources of that shame for me was the sin that was involved in those relationships that I had throughout high school and college. And it was very much something that I felt like I was bound to. I think whenever you're living by this, like, oh, I have to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing, whenever you're doing the wrong thing, it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to keep doing the wrong thing because I've already done it, or... I've already done it, so it's not like doing the wrong thing again is going to, you know, be that big of a deal. And so it's kind of this cycle of like, oh, I can never do the right thing. And that was kind of a source of shame for me, and it was really hard to talk about it because it required a lot of vulnerability on my part, and it, like, that shame just really kind of kept me very silent. And I can remember sitting in a car with um, one of the interns at the BSM my freshman year, and it all just kind of coming out and having a sense of like, oh, wow, that was the first time I've ever really told someone about this. And her really welcoming me with, like, loving, open arms and saying, like, okay, let's talk about this. Like, it's okay. Let's, you know, walk through this together. And it wasn't this, like, how dare you do this, or I can't believe that you've done this. It was very much, she, I think I would describe that as a very graceful response. And so throughout college, I continued to have this struggle with um, the same sin and, and shame surrounding it. But I think there was a moment, actually, uh, my junior year where I expressed that I felt very, I was with you, Marcy, I felt uh, bound in this sin. I felt like I couldn't be free from it or from the shame surrounding my past. And we walked together through that and really studied what it looked like to know that like Jesus offers grace, an infinite grace, um, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which really to me meant that I didn't have to live a life bound by the shame of my sin, then I really had to start a process of, okay, what does it look like to really overcome this sin in my life? And that happened through being really open and vulnerable all the time about my relationships and having accountability, having someone asking me, how is this going? So that I could say, oh, it's really terrible, I need help. Or actually, um, I've had, I've, I've been doing okay. And I think there was a moment last year where I really just recognized that I had felt a lot of freedom from this sin that once was like, oh, I can never get past this. Yeah, thank you so much for explaining that and uh, sharing some of those things. Again, participating in vulnerability, which, you know, like I said previously, that's what shame does. Shame isolates us and separates us. And, and I think that we, have, we all have this fear of being known. Like if someone would know what I have done, and <laughs> for all of us it's something, then, then there is no way I'll be accepted. There is no way I could be loved. There is no way 
a God could love me if they knew what I'm doing or what I have done, you know, and that's the great thing about the story of Jesus, you know. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, if, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new has come. And so it's this idea of who you were or what you had do, have done or even what you're continuing to do, there is grace for that. Jesus doesn't want us to sit in that, uh, but but he understands and he is near to us as we try to move forward in holiness or in trying to move forward in understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus. And um, I think that's a really beautiful thing. I had a New Testament pro- professor in college that used to always say the ground is level at the foot of the cross and I always just thought that was so powerful you know that it doesn't matter who we are or what we do um, God's love is for all people and I think that's just a really powerful thing that we all have to keep in mind there's no hierarchy in following Jesus okay Jamie as we're talking about shame what would you say to someone else who maybe feels shame, um, feels stuck in a pattern of something they don't necessarily want to do but can't, feels like they can't get out of it? A big thing I would want to say to them is it's okay to talk about it. It's really scary to open up, but there are people who are ready to listen to you and love you and offer you that same grace that Jesus does. Um, that you don't have to feel a fear that someone is not going to love you or that someone is going to see you differently. But there are people who will listen to you who are ready to to walk with you through that. I think for me it was a really taboo thing for so long to talk about. But that moment that I was talking about in the car with Maisie, I just felt this sense of peace that I finally got to say that and and she did not totally condemn me she did not like say oh you can't be part of the BSM anymore or oh I can't believe that you did this she just continued to love me and see me the same way and there are people out there who if you are struggling with something like that or you were wrestling with some kind of shame there are good people who are ready to walk with you through that. Great. That's great. As we try to follow Jesus, there are great moments of growth, and then there are also times where it's just hard. What are some of the most significant obstacles or hurdles that you have faced while trying to follow Jesus? Yeah, so at the end of my sophomore year, I ended a relationship with someone that I've been with for a really long time, and it was really hard I had to kind of redefine myself in that time, uh, which was really hard. I didn't even really know who I was apart from this person. So it was really hard to trust God in that time because I knew that it was the right thing to do. And in the middle of that, I was preparing to go to the Middle East for a summer with people that I barely knew. And I really was in a bad place emotionally and didn't know how to deal with this breakup. And I was so scared to go live in another country for two months with people I barely knew as I was dealing with that. Mm -hmm. And how did that summer go for you? (laughs) It was a really challenging summer. Um, There are a lot of 
incredible stories of what God did, uh, how he used us. But I think I would define, I would really say it was a summer where I had to truly learn how to rely on the Lord for comfort and strength. There were so many moments where I was just wrestling with it and I felt alone and I didn't know how to talk to my team about it. I didn't know how to communicate what I needed to them. And so I really had to lean into Jesus. And that practically looked like, you know, waking up from a really bad nightmare and having to rest in scripture, like read some of David's Psalms and find comfort in the words there and know that God was um, there for me, that he had great plans for me and that he is the source of life. Um, I really had to learn how to rest in knowing that even if he was all I had, I would still be completely okay. Um, I was in a place where it was hard to talk to my parents. The Wi-Fi would sometimes be blocked, and so I found myself really trying to call them a lot or talk to home or you know, log into social media or something like that to feel connected to people that knew me well. But in those times where the Wi-Fi shut down, I really had to learn, and I think God was really just teaching me how to fully depend on him with my emotions, with the hard things in my life, um, and trust him to work them out. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up your summer uh, project experience. You know, here at the BSM, we are very strong proponents of students spending the summers in a different location trying to represent Jesus. We, we believe that a change of pace and a change of place can equal or determine a, a change of perspective. And we also believe that we want to teach you and we want to train you as much as we can throughout the year. But we also know when you go to a new place, there is a de- there's got to be a dependence on Jesus that is greater than it is here when you don't have the comforts of home, when you don't have access to your family, when you don't, you know, when just it's hard and it's different. And so I know that you spent that summer in the Middle East. What are some other places that you have have gone in the summers? Yeah, after my freshman year, I went to Taiwan for two months and worked with university students there. Uh, with a a team of UT students, and then I went to the Middle East after my sophomore year, and I was in South Asia after my junior year. So relying on God, full dependence, is a a key thing that you learned. What were some other things you learned through those summers? I think one of the biggest things that I learned was that God has a heart for all people all over the world. I had no frame of reference for Christianity outside of small-town churches in America or even churches, just church in America in general, and I think God really showed me that he cares for all people everywhere and really gave me a heart to like want to share who he is with those people as well. I think one of the hardest things I wrestled with was like, what about all the people who still don't know about Jesus? And I think that was a, a hard thing for me to wrestle with because it brought up a lot of questions of if God cares for these people, why aren't there more people here telling them about who he is or, you know, why does he let us choose him? And so it was really, I I had to wrestle with a lot of those things, but ultimately I've learned to trust that God is good and that he wants people to know him and that he is going to do whatever he can to make sure that those people have opportunities to hear him. 
when you were in the Middle East and you were having to learn this dependence on God, uh, what were your thoughts on him at the time or your thoughts on this during this struggle? I remember praying, like, God, I know and I've always heard that you are, like, the great comforter or that you care for us and that we can call you Father. But I did not know what it looked like to practically receive comfort from God. And so I, I remember just praying that almost every day, like, God, I know that you are this comforter. Like, please give me comfort. Like, please bring me peace. And it was hard because there wasn't always an immediate answer. And I think there were times where I was angry because I was stuck in a foreign country with people that I didn't know that well, wrestling with these things. I very much was like, why did I have to, like, end this relationship? Why do I even want to, like, trust you right now? And those were hard thoughts to have about God. But I trusted that he was still good. And as I continued to rely on him, I did start to feel that peace. I was able to feel comfort knowing who God had made me to be, what he had done for me. I really spent a lot of time that summer in Psalm 16. And one of the verses in that psalm says, You have made known to me the paths of life. There is fullness of joy in your presence and eternal pleasure at your right hand. And I said that verse over and over and over again all summer. And it was really something that I had to trust that, that God really is the fullness of joy, that I could have fullness of joy in his presence. And so I spent a lot of time in his presence that summer. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Where you are now, walking with Jesus, why do you choose Jesus? I choose Jesus because there is fullness of joy in his presence and eternal pleasure at his right hand. I don't think at any point in my life that has ever looked like life being easy or perfect or good and that it's not going to be hard. But I know that as, and I've learned as I've followed Jesus, that even in like the hardest of times, um, he is really constant. There is no point at which God's view of me changes. I am still a child of God. I am still loved. And I think that is really big to me. But also he just continues to show me his faithfulness as I trust him. A really cool story that's super random. I had to fundraise for this position to be an intern at the BSM. And through the faithfulness of God, I was able to raise $4,500 in a single day. Um, and it was purely nothing that I could have done, nothing that I said. I don't think any of the conversations I had were just so convincing or anything like that. But he just provided in a really big way because I needed that money in order to be here. And moments like that, I think, are moments where I really see that God is faithful and that he is good. Jamie, you're saying that God is faithful for someone else out there who is trying to like maybe begin walking with Jesus or uh, understanding more about God. What are some things you have done? And we talked about this, and it may be already what you said, but what has faithfulness looked like in your life? Um, in my life, I think, well, I think it also has incorporated a lot of discipline that knowing that I need to read my Bible, not because it's an expectation, but 
but doing that means that I get to sit in the presence of God. And so I think that's like a small act of faithfulness of like sitting in the presence of God um, and continuing to grow in that. But also I think there are things that God has called me to do, which sounds really overwhelming probably for anybody out there who is like, what the heck does it mean for God to call you to do something? But um, I very much feel like there have been moments in my life where God has told me to do something, has called me to do something, whether it be to work at the BSM or to spend my summer in the Middle East, even though it was really hard. And I think being faithful to do those things, faithful to that, even when it's really hard. Yeah, I do think that there's, as you're talking about, there's a really critical part of following Jesus where you, on a daily basis, say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And then beginning to be willing to do that. You know, I think that uh, as you referenced at the very beginning in cultural Christianity, you go to church on Sunday, you look good there, and then you leave, and you do not think about it for until the following Sunday. And when you are truly trying to follow Jesus, it is very much a daily basis of Jesus, I want to follow you in my life. And therefore, what do you want to do in me today? You know, I think it is a very much a different shift on it. Okay, Jamie, um, we hit a lot of things in your life. Thank you again for being so honest and I know that you'd love to talk to anybody out there um, about your life and think other things going on. You, by far, did not share all of the struggles you've had or all of the things that your life represents. And there's so much more to you that we just don't have time to share today. But thank you for being honest with us about what it's looked like for you to follow Jesus. We thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really glad I got to share my story. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the BSM Stories podcast this week. The Longhorn BSM serves to connect students to the love of Christ and help them grow as disciple makers. If you have more questions about the Longhorn BSM, check out our website, longhornbsm.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at longhornbsm. This week, your hosts were Cody Schaus and Marcy Martinez, and this episode was produced and edited by Turner Barnes. Thanks guys, much love.